You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the writers and directors of Midnighters, Julius and Alston Ramsey. What did you do? He's gone. Go back to the house. We need some place where we can figure things out. There's nothing that we could have done. Wait, that's, that's our dress. It was on its way here. Is there anything you've done that would make someone come after you? I am Detective Smith. Does your sister live with you? She's with my husband. Where did they go? I'm trying to protect us and you're screwing it up. There is a dead man in your garage. You're the one who brought him here. We have to do something about this mess. What happened? He showed up right after you left. And he knows everything about us. You can't trust Jeff. What did you say? It's gonna be all right. How can you be so naive? Hannah is not on our side! Welcome to yet another episode of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Will Mavity, and with us today I have the director, writer, and producer of Midnighters, a new indie film in distribution by IFC. We have with us the director, Julius Ramsey. Hey Will, really glad to be here. I'm excited. And we also have with us the writer, Alston Ramsey. Uh, Also psyched to be on the podcast. So guys, I know it's been a whirlwind of a press junket. There's quite a lot to talk about your film. It's sort of a Coen Brothers-esque neo-noir. There's a lot of directions we could take this. But one of the first things that's lingering with me after seeing this film is, you know, you guys made a lot work on an indie budget. How on earth did you go about pulling off a sequence with fingernails? Because that is really sticking in my head right now. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, it's a difficult thing to pull off on a small indie film, but we had a really great special effects makeup supervisor named Brian Spears, who's done a lot of um, indie genre films. He's also done a lot of the Marvel shows. I believe he did The Punisher and a few others down in New York. Um, so we met with him, and we knew that was always going to be one of the big gags of the um, film. That's what call it in the business, a gag, if it's um, using you know, special effects makeup. And we... Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time making. He spent a lot of time making the prosthetics, and they're essentially like plastic fingers that are filled with tubes that have blood in them, and then he pumps it up so it has a certain amount of pressure. Now, the tricky part about filming a sequence like that is that the fingers themselves, you know, no matter how good you want to make it, that they're not going to look great when they're in a close-up. But when we were actually filming this, um, Brian. He, uh, you know, suggested an angle, which was like a low angle looking up. So you saw the edges of the fingers poking out over the chair's handle. And we decided to, um, you know, I, I took his suggestion. I put the camera down there and 
by doing it at that particular angle, it kind of hid the weaker part of the prosthetic um, so you couldn't see it. And that way when um, you know the nail hit, you really saw it pop over and the blood spill over the front edge of the fingernail. And with some creative editing, you know, I think it really sold the gag. So obviously that's kind of the gruesome standout of the film, but both of you guys come back from eclectic backgrounds coming into a film like this. Now, Jute, I understand that you worked in The Walking Dead a lot, and Alston here has one of the more interesting backgrounds for a screenwriter I've ever heard. Uh, Alston, tell us a little bit about your credentials prior to becoming a screenwriter. Sure. Out of school, I started my career as a magazine editor in New York, and um, after a year or so, I got an email out of the blue from Don Rumsfeld, who was a Secretary of Defense from his chief speechwriter, and I applied for a job, and I got it, and so I started working for him about three months before he got kicked to the curb um, after the midterm elections in 2006. So I ended up being the deputy chief speechwriter for the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, from 2006 to 2010. Um, that's sort of the heights of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I spent a fun-filled year in Afghanistan on General Petraeus's staff, who was the commanding general at the time. Um, so yeah, I was a DC speechwriter for a number of years before sort of getting out of the political realm. So for each of you, how did your backgrounds, both in The Walking Dead and acting as a speechwriter in Afghanistan, lead you to create this film that's sort of a domestic neo-noir? Tell me a little bit about the inspiration you both took. Sure, I've been, um, you know, I've always been interested in thrillers. It's one of my favorite genres, and I've worked on you know, a lot of television shows over the years that were in genre, primarily science fiction and horror. So I've been wanting to make my own feature film for a number of years, and when Alston moved to Los Angeles to pursue screenwriting, we sat down and we um, talked about what kind of a film we would like to make together, and we kind of came up with this storyline with the parameters that we wanted it to be a thriller that didn't rely on any supernatural conventions or any, you know, gimmicks like some sort of strange monster, um, and I mean like a supernatural type monster, or really any force that was not human and somewhat grounded in reality. Um, we also wanted to create a film that was could be done at a low enough price point that if push came to shove, we could go out there and raise the money ourselves and produce the film ourselves, which is what we ultimately did. So I think those were the main parameters going into this project as to what um, I, I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I thought was really interesting um, when I started to screenwrite from my background, it, it had always been a hobby, I guess, when I was in Washington and speechwriting. Um, I started reading screenplays. I read books about screenplays. I took the Robert McKee seminar, which anyone who's ever written a screenplay has like 80% of working screenwriters have probably taken. And I had no idea when I finally said, you know, I, I want to write a screenplay if I'd be any good at it. I just haven't written fiction. And what surprised me was a number of the skills that I had developed while speech writing translated over um, two in particular. And the, and the main one probably is writing dialogue, because it turns out when you're speech writing, all you're doing is listening to the way people talk. And you're learning to write in someone else's words and their language and the rhythm of how they speak. And so it came a lot more easily than I thought it was. And then the other aspect, and I think this is an overlooked 
element of speech writing and screenwriting is research, just that whether it's sort of interpersonal research or relationships you have or actual book research, um, I think that that is the real difference between you know, very good speeches and very good scripts and ones that aren't necessarily as good. So you wanted to listen to how people really talk in the real world. So how was it creating a character like Smith, who is a creature from another world entirely, yet still grounded in reality? Tell me a little bit about the creation of the Smith character. Oh, gosh, the genesis of it, I couldn't even remember right now, except that we wanted an antagonist. We wanted one that would be original and you haven't really seen before. And as we started drilling in on that, it just felt like you wanted someone that was less, um, you know, scary in that sort of arch nemesis way and that the terror would come more from the intelligence factor and the, the sociopath factor of someone who toys with people and is, is brilliant and intelligent and can kind of talk their way out of anything. And that just went down this road where he just kind of came to life as this guy that I mean, I don't know how the best way to describe the way he talks and what he talks about. It's very esoteric stuff. And it's, you know, does he really believe it? Is he just toying with people? Um, I don't know. I mean, he just came to life and spoke the way he spoke. I mean, it's a very original way of talking. And, you know, I think with the screenplays I've written, when I've gotten to a certain point of understanding the characters, they do take on a life of their own where you know, you're writing a line and it just feels like they're saying it rather than you're putting words in their mouth. Now, did you derive any inspiration for him from David Lynch? Because that's definitely, he felt like somebody who would be at home in a David Lynch film. You know, I didn't explicitly think of it, but I would not be surprised to sort of plant it in my subconscious as I'm sort of sitting there thinking through, you know, who are the great villains in film that I like. If some of that weirdness wasn't sort of coming through now i guess going back to Juli uh, julius a little bit tell me a little bit about how you collaborated with the production designer on a low budget film to create these eerie eerie interiors because between the garage uh the inn at the end and the under construction house these are some very distinctive images you created tell me a little bit about that process cool well thank you very much i'm glad you liked them um I mean, the first stage with production design is figuring out what the look and the feel of the film are going to be. I had spent a lot of time building out a lookbook, which is a 30-page document, primarily pictures, but some text, and it describes the tone of the film. It describes what the locations are going to look like. It describes how things are going to sound. It describes the mood that you're trying to set. Um, I also created what's called a ripomatic in the business, which is where you take snippets from other films and you assemble them into what would best be described as a fake trailer for the movies. It's about a two-minute piece, but it would almost serve as a trailer for our film, aside from the fact that everything in it is parceled from other movies. So after sharing those with our production designer, whose name is Ali Malilo, Allison Malilo, um, who's very, very talented, um, you know, we had been talking, and then I also began location scouting. Um, because it was a low-budget film, I wound up doing all the location scouting myself. Um, I would just interject that he probably sifted through no less than a thousand listings oh through God. the entire state of Rhode Island. I mean, by the end of it, I was trying to help out where I could, but I couldn't because he was like, 
you know, he deserves a license for real estate brokerage in Rhode Island. Yeah, I, I'm an honorary real estate broker in Rhode Island. But, um, you know, we, I called tons of people, looked at, I mean, mainly it was houses on Zillow because, you know, traditional location scouting, they typically are going back to locations they've used before and they have deals with certain people. And we just really weren't at that point and we were filming in an area like Rhode Island where there's very little filming going on. So the strategy with finding our locations and primarily the house which was a central location for the film was to find people that were selling a house but they hadn't quite sold it yet and they might be willing to because we were filming in february and march they might be willing to hold off for two months two or three months until the spring which is a better time to sell a house anyway and for a certain amount of money essentially rent this empty house to us at which point we would fill it up with furniture and decorations and transform it into our set and so after we had looked at lots of houses, and Allie would go with uh, with me um, and Alston um, to look at them, as well as one of our producers, Jarrett Blankhorn, who's also very talented, um, we stumbled upon this house, which was much larger than the house we had envisioned in the screenplay. Um, Jeff and Lindsay, you know, come from modest backgrounds, so we had thought it would be a you know three bedroom, modest home, and we found what was can best be described as a large Gothic looking estate if you will and once we looked at it it struck such a chord with myself and with Allie um, you know we started really thinking about how we could transform the the screenplay and the storyline in order to accommodate this amazing location which just seemed like such a wonderful opportunity for a place to in which to film uh, it was very cinematic um, you know I remember it had these floors that were tiled floors in some of the rooms. It had this beautiful, giant, I mean, decrepit and scary basement, but would have been perfect for our purposes. And so um, that's what we did. We, we shifted the storyline so that Jeff and Lindsay were still at the same financial level, but they had decided to put everything on the line and purchase this giant house, which we made a lot more dilapidated. And then um, through a pop process of renovation, um, make it better so as they could sell it and flip it for a profit. So that becomes the part of the story that Jeff is the one who's spearheading it. He's supposed to be renovating it himself and doing all this construction. And to that end, we, um, you know, went about in the production design that, that Ali did so brilliantly, making the house look worse than it actually was by putting in a lot of um, scaffolding and tarps and um, power saws and various kinds of equipment that one would use to renovate a house. Um, we also did some stuff on the front of the house, like the handful of shots you see of the house's exterior. We added scaffolding to the front. We used some visual effects to um, put some holes in the roof. We put boards over the windows so that when the audience is watching the film, it feels like this is a large rundown house. And I think we um, were able to successfully sell that um, aspect of the location. Um, so, I mean, that was really step one for that um, that location. And the other ones, I mean, you mentioned the bed and breakfast hotel that they go to. Um, you know, in the original screenplay, it was a rundown motel. And I was looking for something out of the 50s or 60s that had some of the neon and whatnot. But um, I couldn't find anything like that within striking distance of where we were in Rhode Island. Everything it, it, that was crappy if you will it didn't have any sort of a cinematic look to it because even when things are supposed to be worn down and and in bad shape they still need to have 
a cinematic feel. They need to somehow be able to pop on film and have a unique, memorable tone to it. And um, I, I stumbled across, after countless searches and coming up with different ways to look for locations, I happened upon this Victorian home that um, happens to be, I think it's like the second most well-preserved or longest preserved um, Victorian mansion in um, America. and That's so it, cool. Yeah, it's really so cool. So weird. And it, it happened Ten to be, minutes from where we're shooting. Yeah, oh ten God. minutes from where we're shooting. And, you know, we contacted the owners. They don't, they never really had, they've, they've done tiny little photo shoots there before, nothing like a feature film. And uh, it was a woman, a very kind woman who owned it and um, lives there along with um, kind of a caretaker. And we, they, they let us go there. And we were originally just going to shoot on the exterior because we never thought there was a chance they would let us shoot inside. And we um, you know, went over there and met and the exterior is you know, perfect. It's beautiful. They're, they seem very willing to play ball. And then we asked the next question is, well, what does the inside look like? And we saw it and it's breathtaking. And we asked if we could film there, and they were kind enough to say yes. So it really wound up working out perfectly for us. And again, we accommodated the script to um, that aspect of the storyline. So it's more of a creepy bed and breakfast than a rundown, um, you know, motel with neon signs. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons that an independent filmmaker might take from this anecdote is that don't get so locked into what you conceptualize on the page that you ignore incredible opportunities for filming um, when they present themselves. I mean, we were talking about David Lynch. There's a, a David Lynch story that I often think about, and I always think about it whenever I'm location scouting, but if you recall on the pilot for Twin Peaks, there's a scene where they go in to um, find Laura Palmer's safety deposit box in the back of a bank, and there's this giant moose head, you know, stuffed moose head that's like laying on a table and the characters open up the, the safety deposit box and they go through it and they talk about what they find, et cetera, et cetera, and they never comment on the, the moose head. It's just there. <laughs> but it becomes this really iconic, memorable part of the scene. And I worked with a director years ago who directed, I think, the seventh episode of Twin Peaks. And she had asked Dave Lynch about exactly what this was and, and why he included it. What was the artistic significance of it? Like what what made him think to put in a moose head and put a moose head into this scene and his answer was because it was there <laughs> and that's exactly what happened he went to scout the location and they happened to have this giant moose head laying on the table and he's like that's great let's leave it <laughs> you know and, and so it's just really like letting yourself be open to these ideas that the universe presents and incorporating them into your art because um, often as they say um, truth is stranger than fiction now, you have me curious. You you said you were the location scout, essentially. What other roles did you guys fulfill beyond the most obvious ones with your titles? Any role that needed to be done, we did. Um, Jude also found our caterer and negotiated that. And my favorite, I, I ended up doing a lot of the accounting work. Um, and, you know, I do our taxes and accounting and all that, which is a tremendous amount of fun. Um my favorite story of that is that after we finished the shoot and we were wrapping out the location, we didn't want to pay the, you know, maybe it was 500 bucks to get a cleaning crew in to do like a, you know, moving out type cleaning. And so we we're like, well, we'll do this ourselves and save a few hundred dollars. And um, Jude took it on to 
scrub the bathrooms down. So <laughs> literally the director of the film is cleaning bathrooms after the shoot so that we could save a little money because that's just that's just what you have to do. Well, in addition to all the floors in the house, and this is, I don't know, like an 8,000 square foot house. And oh I washed all the wood floors with pine solvent, whatever it was. <laughs> I, you know, I spent about two days cleaning everything. Um, you know, after having, you know, done pre-production on this film, you know, not to mention getting it, putting it all together over the course of a few years, and then having what can best be described as a very taxing shoot. Um, uh, you know, for some reason, it was just very cathartic for me to clean and do something that was relatively mindless um, versus the, you know, heavy mental work that I had been doing thus far on the film. And, you know, it was a way to kind of disengage from the whole process for a few days, as well as, as Alston pointed out, save a few hundred dollars. We also, when it got to post-production, we did a lot of our own post shoot edited the film. Um, we ended up doing, it's called the online version of it ourselves, where we, you know, bought a computer and online and returned the computer um, just because it ended up being a, a technically complicated process because we were shooting in 4k anamorphic um, and we were working with um, you know a, a house where like they weren't used to dealing with that format and so it just made more sense for us to do it ourselves I mean that's it's independent filmmaking you you're gonna find yourself doing a lot more stuff I mean Gosh, I ended up designing the the titles that are in the film, like learning how to use the program <laughs> After Effects to do it, just because, you know, that's what had to get done. So was this uh, since you cleaned the crap out of this house? Did literally? It? Oh God! <laughs> uh, I did that come to show itself since the fact that at least in the final version of the film, the cleaning sequence is one of the standout moments. Um, right. Was that something you always planned on dedicating such love and attention to, or did that come kind of because you had this attachment almost to cleaning the house? Uh, no, I had no attachment whatsoever. <laughs> it, just, it came out because that's what needed to be done, and we were trying to get all of our um, you know, deposit, our rental deposit back from the house. <laughs> so you mentioned it was a very taxing shoot, and you were filming in Rhode Island, which is very, very cold in the dead of winter. Um, can you give us any anecdotes about this process what was I mean sure it was you know it was it was freezing cold I mean when we started the shoot I'd say at night it was 10 to 15 degrees um, we were filming all night for a lot of the beginning part of the the shoot um, you know our cast were champs throughout they you know got quite cold I mean you can see breath their, their breath in the garage at night because it's so cold and um, there's a shower sequence where um, a character drags another character into the shower and we discovered about 10 minutes before we were actually going to film that that there was no hot water <laughs> in the house and um, as you can imagine that time of year um, the water was pretty darn cold oh so the Make cast were champs and agreed to film it but after they were under the water for you know 30 or 40 seconds i mean they started shaking uncontrollably because of the cold <laughs> to make matters worse it was our fault that there was no hot water because when they you tie into the main electrical to run your generators and mm -hmm. lights and everything and so two or three weeks prior when we had done the tie-in you know you cut all the electricity for you know 20 30 minutes and then turn it back on and so it had killed the pilot light on the hot water heater and <sighs> no one's living there so you don't notice that there's no hot water until 15 minutes before the one scene where oh like it's it's relevant um, 
I, you know, I thought those first few days were brutal all night in a garage that's 10 or 15 degrees, like you said. But there's also something about a garage where the air is so still and you've got like the cement floor just seems to radiate cold. Um, and then the other time is the there's a car accident at the beginning of the film, um, which we shot about three weeks in. And that was two all nighters, you know, outside and it was it was cold and that final night where we had this car accident scene you know we're we're doing a lot of shooting before you get to the actual stunt and then you know you're racing against dawn because the sun's going to come up at some point and the second it gets too bright like you're done you got nothing else and you've got stuntmen and stunt drivers and all of this and so that was that was an intense night and then that shoot lost his voice like he <laughs> It had a cold and it just went out. And you're outside where you're having to yell across long distances. So at some point, I became his voice where, where literally he says something and I just yell whatever he says. And I'm kind of on on auto auto load where I'm not even hearing like what he's saying. I'm just repeating it as loudly as I can, which was just... Oh my god! Interesting, giving direction to to actors. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's quite frustrating as a director to lose your voice. <laughs> There's all kinds of metaphorical significance to that. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> um, another question I had was, tell me about the score because it's you know you you had this fascinating, very organ heavy, I guess, very funereal score. Tell me a little bit about the development of that. Sure. Our score was composed by um, Chris Westlake, who's a, a brilliant um, film composer. Um, we got connected with Chris. We, we met with a number of people, but Chris seemed to really get the film in a way that other people didn't. Um, he spent a lot of time at the beginning coming up with a theme for the film. Um, that was important. Um, one of the films that was a big inspiration for this movie is a film called Shallow Grave, which was Danny Boyle's first film um, from the uh, early 90s, mid 90s and that film has a very iconic um, piano theme to it so we wanted to do something like that like our own riff on um, a theme that could run through the score and I mean some of that stuff is it's almost subliminal um, by the time it actually makes it into the finished product but I, I do think it's very effective and I think that Chris came up with a really cool um, score and a cool theme that that ran through and, and his theme as Chris described it, it, it was almost incomplete. Um, like, so throughout the movie in the first half or so you, you're hearing it, but it doesn't ever get to completion. It doesn't have the complete theme. And it's not until the very last scene that he completes the notes. So you sort of hear the full progression of the, the thematic elements that he had designed, um, which I thought was, really cool and, and really effective um, at the end of the movie. As far as the organ goes, um, that was just you know trial and experimentation. Um, played with a lot of different instruments um, and Chris you know quickly settled on the organ as he felt that it conveyed um, a, a, a gothic feel to the to the film that was one of the um, aspects of it that I, I was very interested in um, tonally. I like to describe our film as a gothic fairy tale um, on, a, on a more metaphoric and tonal level and I think the organs were um, how Chris interpreted in, interpreted that um, you know that aspect of the movie from, from my end you see it as a fairy tale oh, you gotta well I think he means 
if you've ever read the original grim fairy tales like the original german mm-hmm. translation they're really dark i mean it's very dark stuff it's very different than you know like cinderella's think, sisters it's, it's, cut off their toes to fit in the shoes right yeah yeah i mean so it's much darker twisted well, stuff yeah i mean that that's true for sure but i mean i also think Emotionally speaking, I mean, often an old fairy tale, and yeah, we're talking about like the old old fairy tales from, you know, Western Europe, um, the Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen. Um, and even if you go back to L. Frank Baum and you read the original Wizard of Oz, I mean, the, the Tin Man is, um, he gets all his arms and legs cut off, which is how he originally became a Tin Man. I mean, that's part of the children's story. But um, thematically... <laughs> <laughs> the protagonist often starts out in a bad relationship. I mean, it's typically, you know, there's an evil stepmother or their, um, you know, parents that have abandoned the kids in the forest. And so our film, you know, it kind of begins like that. It's these this couple and they're in this bad relationship and they're they're journeying through the woods, which is also an iconic part of, of many old fairy tales. And they, they have an event that occurs that, that, that sets them off on an adventure. And yes, in this case, the adventure leads them back to their house, but... Um, you know, psychologically now they're they're in it and they're they're in a morality tale that um, all stems from this idea of original sin, which is how they cover up this this death, and that is what leads them to their own punishment. That um, the way in which they deal with that, I hope, becomes cathartic for the audience, um, as well as there's a, there's a wolf involved, which is also a big part of um, old fairy tales. The, the wolf in this case is a human wolf and is a a, a human monster that appears at their door about halfway through the film, you know, and he's masking himself in this case as a detective, which is just like you know the wolf masking himself as a Little Red Robin Hood, Little Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother, that kind of thing. I mean, those are the elements that I was looking for, and um, you know, in terms of the color palette of the film, I wanted it to have an elevated look. So while it's realistic, it's slightly removed from real life, like things are accentuated from the from the lighting to the um, you know production design, which we discussed, to the, to the even the colors. Um, they're sometimes muted, they're sometimes very heightened. You know, when you look at our night scenes, I mean, there's these really great um, blues that were, that were introduced by our, our gaffer, who did an incredible job. Um, Nia Ku, I think is Q, is that how say his last name? Um, he used fantastic and really helped design that color palette um we used lenses um these very rare set of lenses they're called the hawk vintage 74 lenses that emulate the look of panavision lenses from the 1970s um in that they um they they emulate the imperfections of glass that were from these older lenses because the glass would like slightly deteriorate so you get some um qualities in the lenses like vent um vignetting on on the, the edges um Things like that, and what these lenses do, they t- they seek to emulate that look of the '70s while still employing the advantages of modern lens mechanics, um, which has to do with you know the speed at which they can focus and their ability to you know see in the dark, you know how many f stops you're going to get, and um, that was a real innovation that um, our director of photography, Alexander Alexandrov, who I've got to get a lot of mad props to, um, he suggested these particular lenses and. I spent a lot of time um, you know, on the phone to the manufacturers in Germany, and they were kind enough to loan us a pair of these at a very discounted rate. Um, and it, what it did for me is, I think one of the issues with digital filmmaking is that um, everyone's trying to make everything so crisp and clean and sharp, and but the lenses and the cameras really go in that direction. But I don't know that that necessarily helps the, the tone of a film. I mean, sometimes 
it's more important to obfuscate the image and to transform the image and to degrade the image in order to um, depict the kind of scenes and the look that we want to get. And I, f I think that these lenses were a real, gave us a real um, advantage in our um, desire to do that by cutting against the um, more high definition, crisp look that the Alexa camera that we were shooting on um, typically gives. By, by using these lenses, we were able to create something that for, you know, to simplify it, it just looks a lot more filmic. It looks like something that is, was done, um, you know, on film. Wow. <laughs> no, it, it had a You very... wanted to geek out about lenses, Yeah. Right? No, that, that's awesome. No, it was a very haunting, creepy aesthetic. Because I, I was... And is that, Alec, is that his first feature? Because I know he was a camera op, I think, on Doug Lemon's The Wall recently. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's possible. I'm not really sure what, if he was... What he's been doing um, recently. But um, that was actually his third feature. Um, he had done a film called The Neighbor with um, James Caan... And then he did a very, very small, um, low-budget indie. And then um, and around that time, I met Alex. Um, one of the things I really liked about Alex is he's done a lot of um, commercials and, you know, modeling shoots and music photography. But Alex has a very artistic eye, and he's done a lot of his own work that um, was just very original. You know, there were a lot of guys I talked to who maybe had more experience making feature films, but... Um, I didn't think that they were bringing as much um, creativity um, to the process as Alex did. And, and after we had our meeting and he had seen my lookbook and the, the Ripomatic, and um, one of the first things he did was suggest these lenses. And I went home and looked them up and I knew that was, that was our guy. So you guys have created a haunting, creepy, and apparently fairy tale like story. Um, I assume this is the first of many projects. Where are you guys hoping to go next with this? Um, that's hard to say. There's a lot of, a lot of irons in the fire. I've been writing scripts the last few years as we were putting this together. So I've got some features, some of which are genre, some of them much uh, are more in sort of the biopic true crime, um, area. I have a couple of TV shows and Jude can speak to some of his projects. I think that we'll, there are some projects we're looking to team up on together. And then there's some that, um, you know, are more our own, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I mean, ditto. I, um, you know, I have a, I've done a lot of work in the television space, so I've directed a number of television shows, and I'm I'm continuing to do that as well as developing my own projects. Um, some are feature films, and others are uh, television shows that I'm creating. Well, you can check out Midnighters right now. It's in theaters in both Los Angeles and New York. It's also available streaming on iTunes, Amazon Prime. Cable. Anywhere you have either a TV or an internet connection, you will be able to find it. And MidnightersFilm.com has got a link that will show you where to see it everywhere. And as, as of this recording, currently Midnighters has topped Deadpool on the iTunes charts, so let's hope it keeps rising. Guys, thanks so much for being on. It was fascinating hearing about the film. Thank, Thank you, you so for, having for having us. We're big fans. And again, I Will Mavity, at Mavericks Movies on Twitter, from nextbestpicture.com. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn. Thank you so much for listening.
Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.